and welcome to episode 22 of The Jared White Show, recorded January 27th, 2019. I'm your host, Jared White, and I invite you to join me in a curated celebration of the art form that is the web. I got an action-packed episode for you today. It's coming in a little late because last week was just crazy for me. Overloaded with work, got a ton going on, too much going on, honestly. But but here I am recording this episode for you, getting it out there, doing what I need to do, and it's very exciting. We'll be talking about the iPad's ninth birthday. Woohoo! What normal people understand about how Facebook's ad tech works. Hint, they don't. And a whole lot more. But first... A reminder that I have a Patreon page. Yes, folks, that's right. You can go to patreon.com slash essentiallifejared and be a supporter of this show. And I'd like to give a shout out to my recent patrons, Jeffrey Ellis and Rick Taroxi. I hope I'm saying that right. So thank you, Jeffrey and Rick, for becoming patrons. And I encourage you as well to go to patreon.com slash essentiallifejared to become a supporter of this show. Uh, all kinds of perks and benefits, depending on the tier you select. I'm particularly excited about the $49 tier because it lets me help you get set up with open web technology for your very own. If you'd like to migrate away from cloud storage solutions run by commercial providers and run your own cloud storage solution using open source software, I can help you get set up with that. I can help you get set up on federated social networks like Mastodon, show you which apps are cool to use with those, and all kinds of fun stuff. So check that out. And now, on to the meta segment. I've titled this episode, A Tale of Two Millennials, because I watched two different movies about two different millennials, and the contrast was truly striking. And I myself am a millennial, so this definitely hit home in terms of seeing the the best and the worst of my generation. Starting with the worst, uh, the documentary, everyone's talking about fire. That's fire with a Y. The greatest party that never happened. It's a new documentary out on Netflix. It's actually a little confusing because there are two documentaries out about this. Uh, There's another one on Hulu, but I have not seen that one. I just saw the one on Netflix. I thought it was very well done. It was also deeply disturbing to me. I just got to warn you, like, don't don't just casually watch that off on the side while you're doing dishes or checking email or whatever, because because this is a disturbing story. It's it's borderline horrific, (laughs) Uh, all all the more horrific because it's actually true. So uh, definitely go into it with a little bit of mental preparation. Um, But I watched the fire documentary on Netflix about Billy McFarland and the other leaders of the fire media company and the whole fire festival they tried to put on and what happened there. And it was just just absolutely terrible. Uh, I feel so bad for all the people that got scammed, all the money that was lost, all the investors that got ripped off all the people working for Fire Media that honestly believed in the company and believed in what Billy McFarland and co. were trying to do there. Um, but it's just it's just a terrible story. I, re- I remember hearing hearing the reports of this Fire Festival, you know, back when, when it all went down a few years ago. 
you know, it was such a big news story, um, but I didn't really know what was going on with it. You know, I just kind of saw the headlines and skimmed through a little bit. And it's like, oh, a bunch of dumb kids tried to put on some festival down in the whatever it was, the Caribbean or something. It just didn't work out. And <laughs> it was a big mess. And so that's really all I knew about it. Anyway, I definitely recommend watching this documentary, and I watched that, and then I watched something completely different. I watched Snowden, which is a movie that you can watch now for free on Amazon Prime, and that movie came out in 2016, and I hadn't actually seen it yet. Uh, so I was very interested in seeing this movie because it's all about what happened with the whole Edward Snowden incident. Uh, if you remember, he's the guy that uh, walked out of the NSA with tons of files on all the secret programs that were happening under the Obama administration's nose. Uh, it, it's it's unfortunate because, you know, this kind of mass surveillance of Americans came out of the whole hysteria after 9-11, and that was during the Bush era. And then Obama became president, and I think Snowden, along with a lot of people, sort of just automatically assumed that the government would change tactics and do a better job of protecting American civil liberties. And, well, that didn't actually happen. <laughs> and so Edward Snowden had had enough and did something about it. Uh, and again, you know, you read some of the news reports when this stuff happens and you hear about this Snowden character and some people call him a hero and some people call him a villain. I personally feel like he's an American hero and should be pardoned. I absolutely believe that. And I believed that before I watched the movie but after watching the movie, I was even more sympathetic to his character. And there were a number of things that happened in the movie where I was thinking, was th did this really happen? Did it really go down like that? And I looked it up and yes, actually, this movie is considered very accurate. In fact, Edward Snowden himself was loosely attached to the movie project and has basically given it a thumbs up. He liked the movie and felt like it did a reasonable job of portraying what happened, you know, with a little bit of Hollywood coloring of you know, emotional moments and showing, you know, people's motivations one way or another, you know, the kind of things that that you get in a movie. But uh, I think, you know, if you're going to watch a, a movie that's not a documentary about a historical figure, this is probably about as accurate as it gets. And so I really enjoyed the movie. I thought that all the actors and actresses did a fantastic job. I feel like uh, it was it was well shot. The pacing was good. The screenplay was riveting. But it, Basically, the, the point I want to make here is between watching the documentary about Billy McFarland and then the movie Snowden about Edward Snowden, the, the contrast between these two millennials is so stark. It's, it's just such an extreme difference. On the one hand, you have a guy that totally ruled the whole, you know, hustle and put yourself out there and kick butt and change the world and start something amazing and and disrupt everything and get in with all the influencers and crush social media and like all this stuff that we sort of, you know, see as like stereotypical uh, how millennials run companies these days kind of behavior. Uh, and he did what a lot of people seem to do. And that was all facade. And underneath, he was just a total snake and a fraud and just scamming everyone. Uh, and, you know, because th there's such a pass given to this sort of Silicon Valley style hustling mentality, this whole culture of, of how startups are, quote unquote, supposed to work these days. Uh, Billy McFarland just kept getting a pass, you know, problem after problem after a problem. And everyone just assumed he was, you know, the next Steve Jobs or some nonsense. 
Uh, so you have that on the one hand. And then you have Edward Snowden, who, who who's actually a little bit older. He's, he's you know, on the older end of the millennial cohort, as am I. Um, but still, you know, certainly in, in within that generational uh, frame of reference. Uh, and, you know, he, you know, definitely seemed like a solid character, someone who was really trying to, to do something good in the world. He, he thought he was serving his country. He thought he was helping protect us against the bad guys. And then he found out that, well, in some respects, the bad guys are us. <laughs> And, you know, every, every time that happens is a shock, uh, you know, when, when your, your faith in the institutions or, or the religion or the family or, you know, the, whatever it is that you believed in that was kind of the bedrock of your world, when that all comes crumbling down, uh, it can be quite a shock to the system. But, you know, he, he decided you can't just be angry. You can't just be upset about what's going on, but not do anything about it. You know, ultimately, if you just rant and rail or if you do nothing, both of those don't accomplish much. What really accomplishes something is actually putting yourself out there and doing something that's perhaps dangerous, uh, perhaps will be misunderstood, is the hard thing to do. People are going to uh, not be your fans anymore, not be your friends, perhaps. You might be utterly alone, but you have to do the right thing. You have to expose injustice and you have to expose the wrongs so that people can make up their minds about, you know, what what we really want to do as a society going forward. And so that's what he did. You know, he took all this information, all this classified information, um, and he worked with respected journalists to try to get the information out there in a way that people would really, really take notice. And they did. You know, I think the most telling part of the whole movie was the end. And I won't, you know, I won't give away the the sort of internal plot, but we all know what happened. That we we know that the government changed. The United States government actually changed its policies and put a stop to a lot of these data harvesting programs. Uh, you know, at least we that's what we think. <laughs> There's always the possibility they're they're starting up that sort of thing again in a myriad of ways, and it's a never ending battle to protect our privacy, but. You know, the programs that were happening at the time that Edward Snowden was so upset about, uh, those programs got stopped. So in that respect, what Edward Snowden did was unquestionably a successful endeavor. So again, you can watch both of these movies on Netflix and on Amazon Prime if you have uh, subscriptions to those services. And both are a really fascinating portrayal of, of both the worst and the best of the millennial generation. And as somewhat of a side note, uh, I've been thinking about this even more in the context of a recent New York Times article called Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? And it's all about this sort of hustle mania going on and, and companies that are fostering this kind of culture like WeWork, where there's this sort of expectation that you know, you're just sort of on 24-7. You're living the entrepreneur lifestyle. You're, you're living, you're breathing startup culture and just hustling and hustling and getting yourself out there and trying another thing and trying another thing and building this and building that and disrupting everything. And you're going to change the world and you're going to make everything amazing and it's going to be incredible and you're going to live your dream and you're going to become the best version of yourself. And 
it's it's this whole sort of line that gets fed to you and i i'm not poo-pooing all of that i think some of that is sound i think some of the ideas of find out what you were born to do and go do it you know i i'm not against that per se but i definitely think it gets taken to an extreme particularly when you become defined by the work you do. If your conception of yourself is 100% wrapped up in the work you do, that's really a problem. You know, I feel like the, the work I do as a web designer and developer, and I, and I get paid decent money to do that, which I'm grateful for, you know, it's, it's important to me. It's important that I do a good job. I, I take pride in my work. I feel like I, I want to do well and be successful but I don't want to define myself by that work. You know, I, I'm, I'm working on a side project right now that I hope will be an app in the app store in another month or two. And I'm really excited about that. But again, I don't want to be defined by this app. I'm not trying to be the next Steve Jobs. I'm not trying to be somebody that is just, you know, on the world stage defined by this product they've made. I have other interests. I have other things I like to do. You know, I like working on code. I like working on design, but I also like taking a walk in the woods. And I don't feel like one is more important than the other. I don't feel like one has to uh, put the other on the side. In fact, I feel like if I'm not living a whole varied lifestyle, that I, it, it actually contributes to a sense of depression and and anxiety for me. And I think that's that's really the, the end result of all this hustle mania is I think it really contributes to mental health issues. I really do. I think a lot of millennials are suffering right now from mental health issues because they've been told that, you know, they're going to be this generation that goes out there and changes the world and comes out with the next app or the next website or the next whatever, and it's going to disrupt everything. And if that's not literally happening right now, you feel like a failure. I've talked about this before with social media. You know, if you're not the person that has a million followers on Instagram, if you only have 10 or whatever, that automatically means that you're a failure somehow. And I just think that's utterly preposterous. And I don't subscribe to that philosophy at all. So anyway, th this hustle mania stuff is problematic. And I'm glad that the New York Times is pointing it out. I'm glad that documentaries about things like the Fire Festival is kind of helping people to realize perhaps that you know, you gotta, you gotta get your priorities straight. <laughs> um, and, and there's also a flip side to this coin too, of it's maybe part of, part of this, uh, extreme lifestyle trend we see with younger people that on the one side of the coin is this hustle mania. On the other side of the coin is this sort of tiny house or van life, minimalism sort of movement where it's like, get rid of almost everything and just kind of travel around and just be part of the world. And you don't necessarily have to have any goals and you don't necessarily have to be trying to make a lot of money. You know, you don't have to buy a Lamborghini or a Tesla to be happy. You can just be happy, you know, sitting on a rock by a beach and looking at the waves and, uh, you know, of course, taking a picture of yourself by that rock on the beach and sending out to your million Instagram followers, but <laughs> we'll skip over that part of it. Uh, but anyway, I, I just think it's interesting, like, for whatever reason, millennials are, are rejecting the sort of normal, typical American lifestyle that, you know, you would expect uh, people to have when they, you know, they grow up and they get a stable job and then they get married and then they have some kids and they live in a nice house in the suburbs and they watch football on Sundays and, 
work, 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 and then retire and live on a golf course somewhere like that. That that was previous generations American dream. That is not the American dream anymore for young people. Uh, and so you, instead you see all these different sort of extreme alternative lifestyles. And again, I'm not poo-pooing any of that, really. I think some of it is sound. I think some of it is interesting. Uh, I, I've actually met some van life people in, in real life, and it was, re- it was really cool to see you know, what they've done to build out their vans. And it's fun to watch their videos on YouTube where they're traveling to. I really dig it. Uh, I just want to make sure that as a society that we're forming now in in this new era of the millennials, that we're not sort of automatically setting people up for failure and depression by, you know, telling them that they have to, (laughs) they have to do one of these extreme lifestyles in order to be happy. And if and if they're not, if they are just living this sort of humdrum normal lifestyle that somehow that, that's, that's bad or incomplete or whatever. So those are my totally off-the-cuff thoughts. I hope I didn't ramble on too much. If you have some thoughts about extreme lifestyles, about hustle mania, about van life, about a tale of two millennials, Edward Snowden, any of this stuff, please let me know. You can just email me at jared at jaredwhite.com. I'd love to hear from you. And that concludes... Today's meta segment. All right, folks, on to the link segment. We're over halfway through the episode here, and we got a lot to talk about, so let's get right to it. Today, today, January 27th, is the ninth birthday of the iPad. Yes, that's right. The iPad is nine years old. On January 27th, 2010, Steve Jobs got up on stage and told us all about the future of tablet computing. And the future was, of course, the iPad. It's a device that sits in between the smartphone and the laptop. And as he said then, and it's still true today, it's better at some things than either a smartphone or a laptop. Uh, It's not better at everything, but it's better at some things. And, you know, it's interesting because Steve Jobs said that all the way in 2010. And I feel like now in 2019, we're still sort of having that argument. Like it's still sort of this ongoing discussion about like, what is the iPad for and what is it really good at? There's people that want it to replace a laptop completely. And then they get mad when it can't quite replace a traditional laptop, you know, because of iOS software limitations or whatever. Uh, and then there's people who who don't get it because they think it's just a giant iPhone and they already have an iPhone they use all the time. So why would they need an iPad? So I think, you know, there's still a little bit of confusion around, like, what is the iPad for? But meanwhile, the iPad is for all the things people do on iPads. And there is a lot of us. I mean, the iPad is not the sort of juggernaut that the iPhone is as a product line, but still a very successful product line. I mean, Apple sells more iPads than most computer manufacturers sell anything. I mean, it's a very successful device, way more successful than the Mac line, just in terms of sheer unit sales. You know, if if you go into an Apple store, you're more likely to buy an iPad than a Mac, like just statistically. <laughs> so it's a very successful device, uh, and I I just love my iPad so much. I use it all the time. Increasingly, I'm using iPad to do true work tasks. And by work, I mean 
graphics design, web programming. Uh, I've, I've used it for writing for a long time, and I definitely consider that work. Um, I just love my iPad. Uh, no, it can't do everything my Mac can do. And, you know, in some respects, I don't necessarily need it to do everything my Mac can do. Uh, I think an ideal world would be it can do everything my laptop can do enough that I don't have to bring my laptop most of the time. Because that way I can have my big iMac on my desktop, which I absolutely love. I can use my iMac when I'm at the desk. And then when I'm on the go, I can use my iPad. And I think that would be an ideal scenario. But I certainly don't mind carrying around a MacBook Pro and an iPad. It's fine. I have a big backpack. I can put both in there. It still doesn't weigh a whole lot. So I'm perfectly content doing that. Um, but th there's a link here. It's in the show notes. Uh, a wonderful article all about the history of the iPad and kind of what Apple is doing leading up to the rollout of the first iPad. It's titled, Apple Got Tablets Right and Created a Whole New Market with the iPad. So I highly recommend you read this article. It highlights something which I've found very interesting ever since the iPad debuted, which is it, it's kind of bizarre that tablets essentially are iPads these days because Apple was so late to the game, so late to the game. I mean, tablets had been a thing for years, like over a decade, really, before the iPad came out. I mean, Microsoft was promoting tablet computing for way before we ever heard of an iPad. Bill Gates was out there writing. I mean, the article goes into this. Bill Gates wrote a book all the way back in 1996 saying that in the future, people are going to walk around with tablets in their hands, you know, jotting stuff down with a, a stylus. And it's going to be, you know, the, the new computing form factor that will take over everything. Uh, and well, you know, needless to say, Microsoft completely and utterly botched their opportunity. They could have ruled the tablet market. They could have had tablets out that were really, truly extraordinary. And Apple would have been playing catch up. But instead, they just had a bunch of lackluster devices out, you know, Microsoft along with hardware partners that just didn't really <laughs> do a good job at all. So tablets were, you know, big, heavy, clunky. You couldn't use your finger. You had to use a stylus. Steve Jobs famously thought that was ridiculous. He wanted you to be able to just use your fingers. And if your interface requires a stylus, you blew it. Now, that quote got taken out of context later as sort of a poo-poo about when Apple came out, the Apple Pencil, which is just silly. I mean, the, it's wonderful to have the Apple Pencil as a companion to your iPad, but you don't need that to do pretty much anything on an iPad. You only need the pencil when you want to do things that where you have to have some kind of stylus-type device, like drawing and sketching and stuff. But anyway, the point is, uh, Microsoft and other companies tried to come out with tablets, and over and over and over again, the market was just not responding to their efforts. And then Apple came along, and basically, they did come out with a blown-up iPhone. I mean, the first iPad didn't really do much of anything that you couldn't do on the iPhone at that time. It was just a much larger screen, and therefore more capable because of that screen. Um, but, you know, people went wild. Well, some people anyway. There are a lot of critics. <laughs> there have always been critics of the iPad for various reasons. But to a certain extent, you know, a certain contingent of people, which ended up being pretty large, just absolutely went wild with the iPad and have become iPad lovers. And even today, you can find podcasts and, and uh, people writing articles about the ways that they do all kinds of crazy things on their iPad to get just the workflow they want to get the things done that they want to do on the iPad. And 
you know, again, for me, I can't do all of my work on an iPad, but I do a lot of it. I do a lot of things on my iPad. In fact, right now I'm looking at my iPad for all of my show notes. And it's wonderful to have this screen here just at my fingertips. I can scroll around and maneuver things. And, uh, you know, in some ways I enjoy using this touchscreen interface a lot more than I enjoy, you know, clicking around with a mouse cursor on a traditional desktop computing interface. Anyway, long story short, the iPad is nine years old, and it looks like this year we're going to see some new iPads coming out in the in the sort of typical 9.7-inch size and even the mini size, which is interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to see what this new iPad mini will be. So uh, probably in a couple months we'll see those come out. Uh, and then, of course, the most recent iPad Pros that came out are truly staggering devices. Um, but there are some limitations in the software side. Uh, iOS 12 is is missing a few key features that people are really looking for, most notably external device storage. So I really hope this year sort of you know completes the iPad Pro picture, if you will. I hope the next iOS 13 or whatever they call it, you know, adds a few new features on the software side, so that for the most part everything that people expect to be able to do on their iPad Pro, they, they can do. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that software upgrade. All right, up next, uh, this story is a little bit old, but I still want to talk about it. Uh, it was announced that DuckDuckGo, the alternative search engine to Google, will start using Apple Maps for local searches on the web. So if you search for you know local restaurants or other local businesses and you get maps coming up to show you where those businesses are on DuckDuckGo, you're going to see Apple Maps on the web. Wait, what? Apple Maps is on the web? Yeah, this is actually something I think not a lot of people are aware of, but Apple a while ago ported Apple Maps to the web. You can embed Apple Maps on websites. You can you know have driving directions and various other features you'd expect. Uh, it's it's basically a, a, a total alternative to Google Maps. Now, some of you out there I know are going to be like, who wants that? Google Maps is so much better, right? Apple Maps sucks. Um, but the truth is Apple Maps has actually been pretty good for a while now. Uh, I, I greatly prefer its appearance. I find Apple Maps far more pleasing on the eye than Google Maps. I, I do notice that Google Maps is more accurate and more detailed in certain ways, like perhaps like trails or or park boundaries or certain other details that aren't sort of the typical, you know, roads and highways sort of stuff. Um, but by and large, I use Apple Maps myself and I'm very happy with it. Uh, again, I think Apple Maps is far more pleasing visually than Google Maps. Um, so, uh, you know, I think Apple Maps is increasingly a, a, a good, decent alternative to Google Maps for most people. And this announcement doesn't surprise me in the least. Of course, DuckDuckGo is going to want to use something like Apple Maps for, <laughs> for their mapping solution because DuckDuckGo is very privacy focused. That's what they're known for. They're sort of the anti-Google in the sense that, um, you know, DuckDuckGo does everything they can to protect your privacy and Apple has the same philosophy. My hope is that this isn't just an isolated announcement, but it will be the start of something much bigger. I really hope Apple and DuckDuckGo partner in a whole bunch of ways going forward. You can already, of course, switch your devices over to using DuckDuckGo as the default search engine, which I have done. I don't use Google Search at all as a default search engine. I, I 
rarely will use it uh, as a second source of results if I can't seem to find just what I'm looking for at DuckDuckGo. Um, but that doesn't really happen very often, to be honest. I find DuckDuckGo generally pretty good. So I encourage you to try it out if you are still using Google Search or even something like Bing Search. Uh, and again, I hope this is just the start of much more, much more deep collaboration between DuckDuckGo and Apple so that Google becomes less and less of a presence of any sort <laughs> in the world of Macs and iOS. All right, next up, a link to an article on Pixel Envy, which itself talks about an article on TechCrunch uh, about a Pew interview. Um, Pew did an a interview of a whole bunch of different people and put together a, a survey, and, and they released the results and found that three-quarters of Facebook users did not know that Facebook maintains a list of their interests and traits to target them with ads. They did not realize that Facebook had profiled them, essentially. Uh, a majority, 51% of Facebook users, said that they're uncomfortable with Facebook compiling that kind of information. Uh, more than a quarter said uh, the ad preference listing that Facebook had generated that they looked at uh, didn't even represent them accurately. <laughs> Let, let me say that again. Just let, let this sink in. Uh, of all these people that got interviewed by Pew for this survey, 27% said, this is, this is a direct quote from the TechCrunch article, the ad preference listing Facebook had generated did not vary or at all accurately represent them. In other words, not only is Facebook profiling you and coming up with all this detailed information about you in order to target you with all these ads, but they don't even necessarily have an accurate profile. They, they might have all kinds of assumptions about you that you yourself feel is, is not accurate, <laughs> which of course means that you're going to get ads that aren't relevant or you're going to get things that you actually find really annoying rather than helpful. Um, so that is sort of the ultimate, <laughs> I think, uh, egg in the face for Facebook that, you know, they go to all this work to come up with these ridiculously elaborate and detailed profiles of people in order to target them with ads, and they don't even necessarily do a great job at that. Mic drop. I don't exactly know what the, what the, <laughs> what the takeaway is here other than, you know, basically most people have no idea what Facebook is doing, and when they find out what Facebook is doing, they find it creepy and annoying and not even accurate which really shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that's been paying attention all this time. But uh, it's, I guess my surprise is that uh, there's still such a lack of knowledge. There's such a lack of awareness. You know, I think th there's sort of this assumption on the part of some people that, you know, folks are willing to trade their private data and their browsing habits and so forth to get services. You know, they've made this trade-off willingly. They're, they're willing to use Facebook and Google and other services and they're using all these services for free. They don't have to pay for them. You know, all they do is give these companies profile data and in exchange they get these free services. And, you know, that's a bargain that works out for everybody. I think that view is totally wrong. I think most people have no idea the bargain that they've made. And when they find out, when they really find out how much data is getting harvested and how much privacy they're giving up, and what the stakes are when private information gets into the wrong hands and gets used maliciously, I think a lot of people go, wait a minute, no, I, I'm not a, I don't want to agree to that. 
I'm not willing to make that bargain. That's creepy. That's wrong. <laughs> so I think the I think the ultimate problem here isn't that people are aware of what Facebook is doing and are accepting it. I think the problem is that people aren't aware of what's going on. And when they become aware, they have problems with it. So that's really the battle we're fighting right now is to 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 educate internet users all over the world to 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 wake up and realize what is going on just how much data is getting harvested, just how much personal information corporations have on them, and why that's a problem, you know, why that can be used to nefarious ends, why that's really concerning in all kinds of ways regarding privacy and security. And, you know, just as a lot of people are rightly concerned that the government shouldn't have this level of detail about its citizens, uh, I don't think we want corporations to have that same level of detail about its users. So it's it's a problem both for corporations and governments, uh, and this this Pew survey is fascinating because it shows just how much work that we we still need to do as as you know some computer geeks in the know, uh, how much work we have to do to educate the populace. And you know, in my own little way, that's what I hope to do in this podcast is just to keep driving these points home and and helping you you know perhaps think about things that you didn't necessarily consider in the past. Sorry to end there on a dark note, but I have something cool coming up here. This is the conclusion of the link segment, and we're on to the last segment, which I call Creator of the Week. And today's Creator of the Week is Jeremiah Schoff, or Schiff. I'm pretty sure it's not Showoff. <laughs> it's spelled S-H-O-A-F. So my apologies to you, Jeremiah, that I'm not quite sure how to pronounce your last name. But anyway, Jeremiah is a designer and an art director, and he's uh, known mainly now for an excellent site that he runs called Type Wolf. I visit Type Wolf often because it is really a tremendous resource for anyone interested in typography, particularly on the web. Uh, there's a site of the day, pretty much every day you can see a screenshot of a site with really cool typography. Uh, Jeremiah lists out which fonts were used and has information about those fonts and where to obtain those. And he has all kinds of resources. Uh, some are purchases to help support TypeWolf uh, about typography, about font pairings, and, and all that sort of thing. So if you're like me, a typography geek, if you love looking at fonts, if you love looking at typeface pairings and how you know the emotional impact of content is so wrapped up in the type of fonts that gets used. Um, please check out Jeremiah's work at Type Wolf. I think you'll really enjoy it, as I have for quite some time now. So that's it for the Creator of the Week segment. Thank you, Jeremiah. I really hope you continue to do Type Wolf far into the future. All right, my friends, that's a wrap. That's the end of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. As always, you can go to jaredwhite.com slash podcast for information about this show and other episodes that I've recorded previously. Uh, you can also go to YouTube and search for Essential Life with Jared. And I have a YouTube channel there where I do videos about the Portland, Oregon area and the Pacific Northwest as well as the philosophy of essentialism. So it's a companion to this podcast with a little bit of a different topical focus, but I hope you enjoy that as I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, also, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash EssentialLifeJared. Uh, so once again, I appreciate you listening to this show, and I'll see you next time. Bye.
White Show, Jared White Show. He is so cool and he's also my daddy. Jared White Show, Jared White Show.